The first reading is from John 20, verses 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outrun Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw that two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he has said these things to her. The second reading is from Romans 5, verses 6 to 11. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Oh, thanks, Jazz, and good morning, everyone. My name is Cam Maxwell. I'm a campus pastor here, and uh, let me add my welcome to that of Kelly's from earlier. Uh, and I'm really thankful that you've all chosen to uh, be here this morning celebrating Easter with us. It's a really great thing to have you with us. Uh, Easter fits in uh, a pretty awkward space in Australia. Of course, we get a massive, uh, wonderful long weekend, and so no one's that keen to get rid of Easter. Uh, but the tone uh, and the conversation around Easter and then the Christianity that's tied to that first Easter, well, I guess you hardly need me to tell you it's a kind of awkward conversation at best. Uh, you know, do modern, educated Australians still believe that Easter story, that someone really rose from the dead? 
For many people, I think Easter just sounds a bit like a kind of a, a silly superstition for kids that you're supposed to grow out of eventually. A tale, a myth for simple people uh, for more simple times. Not rational thinkers like us. No one sensible would believe in Easter. For others, though, uh, spirituality is a really important part of life. Uh, People are very interested in spirituality, but usually and increasingly uh, in Australia, spirituality is about a voyage of self-discovery. It's about me and my experiences of the world. Uh, Spirituality is almost never pegged to something beyond me, to something else. So in that case, why would you even think twice about something that happened to someone else 2,000 years ago? especially an event like Easter that's now wrapped up in what uh, you know, people would call organised religion. As a side note, I'm yet to actually do this, but next time uh, I meet someone who says they're not interested in organised religion, I would love to say, well, great, uh, you should come to my church. Uh, it feels like chaos most of the time. I don't know what's happening. I'm supposed to be in charge of the place. It doesn't feel that organised at all. Now, I don't know about you, um, alongside all this, I also regularly get text messages uh, telling me I have an outstanding road toll uh, that I need to pay urgently. Have you had something like that? Uh, I get calls from uh, someone claiming to be from the Australian tax office uh, saying I might get arrested unless I give them a lot of money. A few nods, uh, people had a similar experience. Uh, Scams are running at all-time highs, and we need to be careful. We do need to look out for them. It's just that organised religion uh, is often derided and mocked as the most successful scam in history. For those, though, who very much believe in the resurrection, I I know you feel that awkwardness, uh, perhaps feeling that as much as people around you, you they'd love the long weekend, um, and they might even think highly of Jesus, the person, but you sense that they kind of maybe pity you a little bit as a Christian, uh, for being, you know, gullible enough to fall for it all, or being you know, a bit more simple-minded than they are. Of course, there's a lot of embarrassment that comes from falling for a scam, doesn't there? Imagine, though, and this is, uh, I've borrowed this from a helpful Christian thinker called Tim Keller. Imagine, though, that one day you get a very official-looking letter in the mail. It's addressed to you, and it's from a very official-looking law firm. It says, uh, you've inherited a huge amount of money uh, from some random person, millions of dollars. The lawyers just want to meet you and arrange it. Now, surely you think, surely that's a scam. It's elaborate, it's better than the text message, but that just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen, does it? Surely it's a scam, you'd think. But you'd probably just double-check, wouldn't you, before you threw the letter out? I'd at least Google the law firm, see if it, was, you know, it existed. I wouldn't chuck the letter out too soon. It sounds too good to be true, but, but what if it was? What if it was true? Of course, you check it out, wouldn't you? You look into it as deeply as you could to find out whether this is all real. What we read, uh, what Jasmine just read for us in John chapter 20, I think, is a bit like that letter. You could dismiss it. You could dismiss it as a scam at worst, or maybe just a fable uh, that's now irrelevant to you and your life. But if it checks out, uh, if the claims made about the resurrection of Jesus, if that stands up to rigorous scrutiny, well, it changes everything, doesn't it? It gives us actually the best possible reason to celebrate on Easter Sunday. Uh, It would be great, by the way, to have uh, your Bible open to John chapter 20. Uh, We're going to be looking at that together for the next little while. Um, And the first thing I hope hope we'll see is that to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it's actually something quite reasonable. It's quite reasonable. In fact, John, the author here, gives us plenty of evidence to consider, uh, to, to weigh up and to evaluate this claim of history. It's not at all that Easter and belief uh, in Jesus is about blind faith, 
just hoping these things are true without any reason at all. We pick up John's account of that first Easter Sunday with one of the women who had witnessed Jesus die, Mary Magdalene. Uh, in verse 1, Mary is on her way to the tomb. It's dark, it's before dawn. Now, she is fully expecting Jesus to be in that tomb, doing what a normal dead person would do, staying still, not moving. And she's startled to find that the stone entrance to the tomb has been rolled away. And so she runs off. Uh, she goes to find the other disciples, uh, Peter and the other disciple. Uh, by the way, it's possibly John, uh, probably John actually, the disciple who went to write John's gospel. Uh, it's his way of including himself in the story. So Peter and John also run to the tomb. Now, Mary's assumption is that the body has been taken from the tomb. Uh, someone else has moved it. That's a pretty reasonable assumption, isn't it? That's what it seems at first glance. Apparently, uh, grave robbery was pretty common in this era. And uh, Jewish people would wrap up uh, deceased people in cloth, and cloth was relatively expensive. You could resell it. But even more than that, the bodies would be... Uh, uh, anointed with sort of expensive spices that grave robbers could, again, resell. It's a bit gross, but you could make money out of it. So you have to spare a, a thought for poor old Mary here and the other disciples. It's been a really rough week for them, uh, to say the least. I doubt they're thinking particularly clearly at this point. But as Susanna just recounted for us, the one that they thought was the Messiah... Um, they had been literally following around the country, supporting him, uh, learning from him, living with him. But in the course of a couple of days, what a week. Jesus had gone from a warm welcome, a public celebration as he entered Jerusalem, just a few days later, being brutally and shamefully executed in front of everyone, including his own disciples. Mary was there at the cross, John tells us. So it's easy to imagine for her that the grief, uh, the fear actually as well, shock, devastation, because Jesus had gone the same way as all the others who had aspired to be the Messiah. As a, a long list now, actually, of those who aspired to be the ruler of the Jewish people that the Romans killed. The Romans were very good at killing supposed messiahs. And Jesus now just seems to be another name on that growing list of pretending messiahs. So Mary gets there and you kind of get a sense of panic, I think, uh, in this early Sunday morning scene because there's just a lot of running, isn't there? Uh, Mary runs back, the disciples run, and they're running all over the place uh, for early Sunday morning. Uh, verse 4, actually, John tells us that uh, the other disciple, probably himself, was way quicker than Peter. It doesn't add much to the story, does it? Who, who cares about who, who, which disciple was the fastest? Um, perhaps it's a little subtle dig at his mate Peter uh, to record for history that which one of them was a faster runner. But it strikes me a very odd detail to include in the story. Like, who cares who's a faster runner? Why tell us that? It just strikes me that this is the way that John remembered that very memorable morning and how it unfolded. He was faster. That's just what happened. And he got there. Uh, he got there first and he looked in and he saw the strips uh, of linen lying there. The strips that should have been wrapped around a body. But then, verse 6, Peter catches up and sort of barges straight past John and goes into the tomb, uh, leaping in without looking first, which, if you've read much of the New Testament, you'll know that's exactly what we expect from Peter, uh, very impulsive, very impatient, and just uh, plows ahead. Now, Peter also see the strips uh, that John could see, and from inside, he could also see the cloth uh, that was separately used to wrap Jesus' head. Notably, Jesus' head didn't seem to be in it anymore. John, the slower and far more thoughtful disciple, enters in verse 8 and he inspects the scene. He has a look. He has a think. 
Now, from what we've read so far, uh, does it sound to you like a fable? Uh, does it sound like a kid's story? Or does it sound like the disciples, uh, so, you know, so overcome with grief, they've imagined some kind of wonderful occasion where they've been reunited with their Lord? Or does this more sound like the account of perhaps what you'd hear in an, a courtroom? Tell us, John, uh, what do you remember from April 3rd, AD 33? How did that, event, how did that day unfold? Who were you with? What did you see? Who got to the crime scene first? Who entered the scene first? John's just laying out the evidence for us to consider and to ponder. Uh, many people would, I think, uh, assume that to be a Christian, you're supposed to turn your brain off, uh, just accept a whole th- set of beliefs with no basis in reality or in fact. But it couldn't be further from the truth. To become a Christian usually takes careful thought, uh, investigation, uh, checking out whether this resurrection is a scam or whether it really happened. Trying to figure out carefully where the evidence leads us to see if it is a historical event. And also perhaps then think about the alternative explanations. How else do you account for the origins of Christianity? I'd go a step further and say it's not just becoming a Christian, it's actually the kind of faith that all Christians ought to have in general is thoughtful faith. Exploring doubts. Asking questions, probing, seeking the truth. Because the kind of faith that isn't accompanied by much thought, or it's vulnerable, it's a vulnerable faith when life isn't going smoothly. Now this morning, I just want to say there is plenty of evidence. There is compelling evidence that the tomb was empty because Jesus came back to life. Uh, John leads us, I think, this morning to consider some pretty key pieces of evidence. Uh, We've already seen the first bit of evidence. Uh, The tomb doesn't have a body in it. Where did it go? If you think about that, it would be the strangest thing in the world, wouldn't it, for grave robbers to have taken the body of Jesus but to leave the grave cloths and the expensive spices behind? It would be stranger still for the disciples to have taken the body of their revered teacher but to unwrap his body first and then carry him presumably naked uh, to, just to lay him somewhere else? What an odd thing to do. It seems to me, Jesus has left his burial cloth and spices behind as if to say, I don't need them anymore. Now, the sceptic may say, well, this account of John, uh, it may simply be a fabrication to convince simple people. You might ask, well, why would John do that? Why would he lie? What is his motivation? And whatever alternative we might come up with, we would need to somehow account for John's motivation because he doesn't seem to gain anything by making up a story like this. More to the point, actually, if John was trying to invent a plausible story, I want to say he's actually done a terrible job of inventing a story, if it was. I'll try and explain what I mean. Uh, In every gospel account, in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, um, all mention that the key witnesses to the resurrection, the first people to see the the resurrected Jesus, are all women. The first people are women. Uh, John here reports the first person to see the risen Jesus with their own eyes, and so the star witness, in his case, it's Mary. Now, what's the big deal with that? Well, if John was trying to make up a story to convince ancient readers, his own readers in his own time 2,000 years ago, if he was trying to convince them this really happened, well, he would never make up that women were the first first people to see the risen Jesus. Now, the reason for that is a bit offensive to our modern ears, Um, So bear with me, but uh, one of the first intellectuals to attack Christianity, uh, a Roman guy named Celsus, uh, Celsus hated the whole Christian movement. Uh, He wrote some pretty hostile things about Christians and about Christianity. 
Uh, one of the things he wrote is he wrote off the resurrection as believable. He thought it's not believable at all because it was reported first by women, who, according to Celsus and most of his peers at the time, he thought women were hysterical and shouldn't be trusted. Now, clearly, Celsus was a jerk. We can all agree on that. But he's one who represents uh, the sexist opinions of the ancient world. That's the widely held view that women's testimony weren't considered legitimate in court. Now, that is the world that John is writing into. If he was trying to make this up, if he was trying to convince simple-minded people, he would never have placed women as a star witnesses. But he did. Which makes us think the only reason I can think of that John would do that is because that's what's actually happened. Eyewitness testimony has always been uh, some of the most important evidence in any case. Uh, that was true in the ancient world as much as our own. Having witnesses to an event in this period it was the most trusted way of establishing the facts. Now, to give you some idea of how this played out in the early church, um, I have on the screen here a, a passage from uh, something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, picking up at verse 3. Paul writes, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. When Paul wrote this, uh, not that long after Jesus' resurrection, many eyewitnesses were still alive. Now, that's the ancient equivalent of saying, well, you can fact-check this yourself. Come and speak to some of these eyewitnesses. They're everywhere. 500 of them. You can interrogate them. You can ask them, what was it like meeting Jesus? What was his hair like? Now, there's far more to say about the evidence. Uh, there is more evidence than this. My encouragement is to go and look for it. Do your research if you haven't done so before. And you'll do well to consider the motivations of the apostles, that the 500 other people, uh, what would make them fabricate that story? To lie, as it were. But all I want to say really this morning is, do you see how this is no mere mythical story? It's reported as history, isn't it? As matter of fact, as a story about going to the shop, shop to grab some milk. Uh, these are real people with real emotions, with personality differences, are just caught up in the most incredible moment in history. And if you were to conclude that Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, you'd still need a compelling alternative reason uh, that the most unimpressive bunch of disciples of a failed Messiah would go on to literally change the world, many of them giving up their own lives to do that. How would that, how would that be so if Jesus did not rise from the dead? Now, on Easter Sunday, uh, all across our country this morning, as I'm speaking, there are plenty, plenty of people uh, that have been dragged along to churches all around the country. Uh, you've been uh, dragged along by a friend or a family member. Uh, so a big welcome to anyone here today who's here under some form of duress or out of obligation. Uh, it's really great to have you with us, and do help yourself to an extra hot cross bun later. Um, for those um, perhaps might not be a big fan of church or of Christianity, for whatever reason, uh, the resurrection of Jesus is the one thing in the Bible I think that is worth putting other objections on hold for to carefully and thoughtfully investigate for yourself if the resurrection is true. Because if it is, it changes everything. Christianity, the whole lot, stands or falls on this simple claim that Christ is risen. You might have objections to Christian doctrine or uh, perhaps even organised religion. Um, that might be one thing. 
But the central thing, the empty tomb, the disciples who testified to the point of death, what account would he offer for those things? Did you notice, actually, for, for John the author in verse 8, uh, after following Peter into the tomb, his own testimony is that he saw and he believed. But then verse 9, he didn't understand much. He didn't have all these questions sorted out. He started by believing that Jesus had risen from the dead, and from there, everything else followed. From there, everything else in his life and in our lives changes. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, it simply can't be that we continue on to live as if he didn't. It changes everything, actually, for each one of us because of what it means. Now, can you imagine in that scenario I mentioned earlier, um, inheriting out of the blue millions of dollars? If it was true, well, do you think it would change how you lived? Or do you continue to live exactly as you are now? Of course you'd change. Something that big changes us. It changes how we live. It has a huge impact on our decisions. The resurrection is just like that. If it's true, it changes everything. At least it should. Uh, logically, rationally, it should. The issue is, though, that we're not always logical. We're not always rational. I know I'm not. Sometimes we just want what our heart wants. For a lot of people, it would seem hearts are just set on other things, regardless of how true or false the resurrection may be. Hearts are just set in different directions. But as much as the human heart may long for all sorts of things, I want to say today it's only the resurrection of Jesus that addresses the deepest issues of each human heart. One way I think we see this play out uh, is with Mary Magdalene. I find it uh, so special with the Bible that there are, there are cosmic truths of eternal consequences sort of, sort of crashing into the lives of normal people, messed up people, and just changing them. Uh, Mary Magdalene, we, we learn in Luke 8, uh, it's the only other place in the Bible we learn much about her at all, uh, we learn that uh, Jesus had cast seven demons out of her, and she started followed, following Jesus from there. Now, the number seven in the Bible, it's usually not just a number. It usually represents uh, symbolically completeness or totality. Seven demons is a symbol of, of how miserable, completely miserable her life had been. Um, even if you're sceptical about the existence of demons, no matter how you would frame it, Mary's life was as bad as it could be. The kind of behavior we see in the Bible of demon-possessed people is that they were feared and they were fearful they were isolated, uh, they'd be self-harming, uncontrollably shouting things out, a cut off from her own humanity and her own place in community. Jesus comes along and he fixes it all. He heals her. Now, clearly, uh, Mary was very devoted to Jesus. You see that as she's by his grave. And you would be, wouldn't you, if someone had rescued you from the scrap heap of humanity? But what is amazing about this Easter morning is that Mary hadn't really been listening to Jesus. She hadn't been listening to him. Now, I say that because Jesus had numbers of times said to his disciples that he would raise from the dead. He put it as clear as day to them, many times. It's just that Mary has seemed to have missed the memo. They all had somehow. It wasn't what they were expecting. So here she is, verse 11. She's outside the tomb. She's crying. One level, that's fair enough. Very understandable. It's been a tough weekend and now a very disorienting morning. And she finally actually goes into the tomb. What does she see there? Mary encounters angels. Stunning beings, breathtaking beings, uh, sent from the throne room of God himself, uh, as, from heaven, as glorious messengers. Now I should point out, um, angels don't actually appear in the Bible that much. 
Um, I'm pretty sure these are the first to appear in John's gospel at all. It's the first time John's talked about angels appearing. It's a big deal. It's a big deal, supernatural beings being sent into the world to speak. What are they going to say? What is their history-changing message from God himself this first Easter morning? Verse 13, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Unfortunately, the English makes it sound a bit harsh. Uh, they're not being rude by calling her woman. Uh, for us, we'd sort of say miss or ma'am. The message is a question, why are you crying? I find that very odd. To go to all that length, go from, from heaven to earth to, with a great message to ask a question, why are you crying? It seems the angels are gently rebuking Mary. Uh, perhaps a far ruder angel would have said, look here, miss, he's not dead. It's obvious, isn't it? He's not here. You don't need to cry. Get on with it. But even angels don't snap Mary out of it at this point. It takes Jesus to seek her out, to change everything. Verse 14, she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, verse 15, exactly the same thing. Woman, why are you crying? Then he adds a question, who is it you're looking for? What a great question. Who was she looking for? She's looking for a dead Messiah. She's looking for a dead body to honour. Someone who had done a great deal for her, a great man. That's not who Jesus is. He is someone who has conquered death itself. Which is to say, Mary's view of Jesus was far too small. See, Mary, in Jesus, had a great friend, a great teacher, someone who had healed her. Maybe she was worried and despairing because maybe the demons would return. Maybe her life would spiral without him. I, I don't know. But it seems to me that Mary had built her whole life. She'd set her heart around this rabbi being the Messiah. And whatever she thought that would mean, in her mind, it was all gone and her heart was crushed. Who are you looking for? Uh, it is a great question, I think, for each of us to consider at Easter. Perhaps not who, perhaps what are you looking for? Uh, perhaps some of us have been looking for someone or something to take away pain, grief or suffering. Uh, perhaps it's someone to share life with, uh, to affirm you, to love you and to give you dignity. Uh, maybe some of us are just looking for some kind of insurance uh, that will be okay in the afterlife. Perhaps you don't know what you're looking for. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Whatever our heart is set on, Jesus in his resurrection addresses all those things. Sometimes he'll challenge our hearts, uh, showing the things we care about the most are actually just temporary things we don't really need, especially in light of eternity. Jesus might rebuke some of the things our hearts are set on as things that actually end up ruining us. And always... Jesus will reveal himself as the answer to our greatest needs, shaping our hearts and our desires to care about what really matters most. See, in his resurrection, he shows us who he is. He is the Lord who rules over everything, even over death. He's our saviour who offers us salvation to eternal life. And he is what each heart searches for. He's the answer to our greatest needs, which are the forgiveness of God, and the assurance that life, this life, is not all there is. When we put it like that, realise he is not a small Jesus. Now, what does it take for Mary to be convinced of this? You know, after mistaking the risen, eternal Lord of glory for a gardener, which is, you know, pure comedy gold, isn't it? 
Verse 16, he just says to her, Mary. Jesus sought her out to reveal his majesty to her. But also, we get to see his great personal care for her. He calls her by name, and she knows it's him. Do you know how much the risen Lord Jesus cares for you? He doesn't just know your name. He knows everything about you, and yet he still died for you. And he has called you by name to follow him. And for all those that do follow him, he has written your name in the book of eternal life. In this encounter that Jesus has with Mary, we we see how Easter changes not just what our heart is set on, but every part of life. When you think about, of, of all the people in the world who have ever lived, the first person that the risen Jesus spoke to was Mary. No one else in the world at this point had seen him. We know later 500 people will, uh, but the first, what an honour, what a privilege to bestow upon Mary, a nobody whose life was a mess, who had no reputation, no status, basically what most people would call a loser. What a mercy of God that he would honour someone like Mary who has no rights to this fame, this this glory, this honour, this joy. That's just like us. So how will Mary see herself into eternity? I dare say she won't care too much about how much uh, she had in her bank account when she died, how much uh, of the world she got to travel or see, or how much uh, success she had in her career, how much other people liked her even. How will Mary see herself into eternity? As someone honoured by Jesus, chosen and called by Jesus, to be a witness to the fact that he lives. It's exactly the same for us. If Jesus has called our name, called us to himself, if he has given us the gift of belief, what an honour. What a joy to be counted by him as a witness, his witness to our world. Does anything else we do really matter as much as that? And what makes this honour so great, being a witness to Jesus' resurrection life, is not that we just get to say, hey, there's a nice guy who died who's alive again. It's, It's far more than that. We get to enjoy living with Jesus, knowing what the resurrection means, what it does. Have a look at verse 17. It's, there's a lot going on here. I'll just, um, verse 17, Jesus seems to be saying to Mary, don't hold on to me. Seems to be saying, don't hold on to me tightly. I know you've lost me before, and I know you don't want to lose me again, but there's something even better about to happen. I'm ascending to the throne in heaven. Jesus doesn't spell it out much in these verses here, but the idea seems to be that he will send his spirit and so Mary will actually, because of Jesus' spirit being with her, she'll never be without him again. And neither will we. The resurrection paves the way for the great moment in world history, the sending of the Holy Spirit, where God's spirit becomes present in the lives of his people. By his spirit, God is present, encouraging, growing, prompting us, giving joy. So many, so many good things. It's all possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The big thing the big thing the resurrection changed is that we can now be reconciled to God. We can be reconciled to God. Jesus ascending and sending his spirit is the great sign of God reconciling himself to us. There are a few things worse on there than a relationship, a good relationship, a good friendship that breaks down. It's terrible. 
And so there are a few things sweeter than that relationship being restored when reconciliation happens. It's not that obvious here in this passage, but the message Jesus gives Mary to pass on to the other disciples has a few clues in it about this reconciliation. First, Jesus calls his disciples here in verse 17, his brothers. He says, go to my brothers. That's the first time in John's gospel Jesus has called them that. It's also a bit strange at first to realize Jesus uh, says to tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. My father, your father, what's he saying? All through John's gospel, uh, Jesus has spoken about God, the father and God, my father. Here is the first time I'm pretty sure he says, your father. His disciples are now part of God's family, his brothers and sisters and children of God. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, people with no right to belong to the family of God, people like Mary, uh, people like me, and people like all of us, we can live now as we are intended by God, by His Spirit, to be in relationship with Him. Not just when we die, but now. Uh, The second reading we had from Romans 5 picked up this big idea. Let me read just verse 10 again. This is from Romans 5. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Firstly this morning, uh, feeling the need to investigate this further, especially what it means to be reconciled to God and to live with him now. Uh, Kelly will have a bit more information about our life course coming up, and uh, that's designed exactly to do that. Uh, We'd love to walk with you through the ins and outs uh, of living with joy, being reconciled to God. For everyone, uh, have a great Easter, knowing that the resurrection has really changed everything. We are reconciled to our Creator, and we have the honour of serving our risen Lord Jesus with our lives. Will you join me as I pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have conquered death. Thank you that you have given us hope for eternity and opened the way for us to be reconciled to you, our Creator. I praise you that you have made us part of your royal family. Please give each one of us great joy as we allow you to do work in our hearts, addressing our desires, our needs, and shaping them to honour you. And so please keep showing us how to live with you as our King and our Saviour. Amen.